Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good afternoon, good evening, good wherever, good whomever, good etc, etc, all that kind of stuff. This is Alan Averill, your hostess with the leastest, the singer in a heavy metal band, by all means. Welcome to Friday's Agitators Anonymous for February the 10th. 2023. Does that sound odd to anybody else when you say 2023? It seemed like only, I don't know, five years ago it was 1989, or was it 1889? Who knows? Hard to tell. All that kind of thing. You can go and follow me on Nemtheang underscore Primordial um, to see my not very exciting adventures, um, or Primordial underscore Official, where adventures are a little bit more exciting. Um, if you've already heard last Tuesday's Heavy Metal Miscellany uh, version of the podcast, the short and sweet version where I indulge myself um, a little bit of nonsense chat, I mainly talked about um, Primordial. Um, or if, if somehow you've landed or you've been living under a rock, a very small rock nonetheless, because we are but a drop in the podcast ocean, um, you will know that that is the... Uh, that's my life sentence, the singing, the singer, the um, whatever you want to say in the band Primordial. And we are making a new album. And I talked a little bit about that on Tuesday. But in the meantime, someone made a good question to me. They uh, told me something um, quite unusual, I think. I, and I, it, I had to really think about it because I was there at the time. I was part of the underground scene that was before that. And I thought, that is an interesting question. And it's far too good to keep on my Patreon, which is where the question was put. By the way, which is patreon.com slash Alan Averill, A-V-E-R-I-L-L, the man who shall conquer in April. And my month is coming up soon, if we get that far, Mr. Putin. Or should I say Mr. Biden? I don't know. God damn it, Bono. Isn't Bono insufferable? Um, addressing the, um, you know, what is that, State of the Union address with Biden. Bono, really, Bono. 
And on the other side, you have Mr. Roger Waters, who I also talked about before on a podcast before. I mean, Roger Waters, you know, I can give or take some or other of what he said. He's not as insufferable as Bono. We don't need the poetry and we don't need um, the sort of social commentary where the man thinks that, you know, um, musicians can change the world. That is very much... Um, leave that in 1969. But um, he got roundly criticized for saying maybe there should be a ceasefire. Maybe there should be um, no more lives taken or blood spilled and seeing as I have friends in Ukraine. I think that might be a good idea. But it seems the military industrial complex eh, isn't quite so interested in that. Anyway, what? Yes, politics. I know, I know, I know. I promise not to talk about them. What was the question you ask? What was the question you ask? Well, I think the question on my Patreon uh, was to comment on how I think um, the Century Media generation of 96, 97, 98, it's a very interesting moment in heavy metal history um, where you take the old underground, let's call it the second wave of the underground. If the first wave of underground bands is 1978 to 1981, 82, which includes New Wave British Heavy Metal, we'll put punk rock in there as well, um, not the kind of 1977 version, but the seven inches, the gritty shit. Um, although, you know, the New Wave British Heavy Metal underground version um, is substantially larger, larger, um, you know, has far more seven inches and in demos to its name. Not really the point. The second wave was maybe 87, 86. Let's go to 86, 87. You're talking about bands, a massacre, death, repulsion. Um, and then you move to, you know, who were still, you know, making demos. Then we get 88, 89, 90. Those bands um, were snapped up by labels, whether it was Earache, Nuclear Blast, uh, Century Media, starting in the early 90s. And what the question was, was, is every counterculture subsumed by the mainstream? Now, to preface this, we must say that Nuclear Blast, Century Media, those big, big, huge metal labels, who I'll go on to talk about a bit, have all been bought by major labels. They're all the property of, um, you know, Columbia or um, Universal, etc., but the question was really to comment on the century media generation of the 90s. And it is a very specific aesthetic and sound. Um, you know, and Nuclear Blast is in and around there as well. And for the f one of the few times I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about some of my peers, but how it changed the underground. And it got me to thinking, and I'll try and explain what I mean. The question is, does every underground counterculture, let's call it, um, let's call it that. Uh, does it all end up co-opted to some degree by the mainstream? Every grassroots, every grassroots movement. Does it end up with Discharge making an awful hard rock album, which they did in about, what, 87, 88? They don't really talk about that now, but they did make an awful hard rock album. Why were they just bored uh, punks who saw how much money the metal scene was making and thought we could have a piece of that? Or was it just a, you know, a misstep? Or Saxon trying to sound like Def Leppard, which they did in 86, 87. Hey, I like Innocence is no excuse either. Cradle of Filth in magazines being photographed in the kitchen doing the washing up. Um, every week in Kerrang! or the Dead Kennedys. Um, our, our boy Jello trying to block the use of California Uber Alleys in an ad. Because let's be honest, the, the chances are most likely some old punk, old punk, um, who had previously worked in advertising, advertising um, let's rephrase that, some old punk who was now working in advertising thought, ah, it's kind of funny. What would be more funny than taking um, an anti-establishment song and 
you know, co-opting it for the establishment. Um, a traitorous, of course, train of thought. But Or new metal bands trying to score hits with covers of 80s pop songs. I don't know if you can realistically call new metal a grassroots roots movement. I suppose you can in some degree. Black metal bands thinking it's okay to enter the Eurovision. It isn't. Um, thrash bands all trying to follow Metallica out of the gate whenever they could make their own versions of it first and Justice for All um, because you cannot underestimate how much Injustice for All changed the scene everyone kind of went oh is that the way is that the way out of the gate to greater album sales but when the Black Album dropped boom whether it's Testament you know Testament make the ritual all the way to let's say the end game for Megadeth of Risk um, is it and you know realistically they did that before they tried to chase the Black Album out of the gate with Euthanasia but there's so many examples off the top of my head and there's underground examples and I'm sure you can find it everywhere if you go back to the 1970s and how Blondie and Talking Heads went from the CBGB's uh, underground scene all the way to the top of the pops did they comp- did people who went to CBGB's to see them think they compromised I don't think the Ramones compromised but they still had Phil Spector make a few albums it made me wonder had I ever done have I ever done something like that I don't think so but you know New Wave of British Heavy Metal went from the back streets to the majors as labels fell over themselves trying to find the new Maiden or Def Leppard. Bidding wars erupted over like Samson and Diamond Head. Um, Diamond Head, who famously kept the management of their parents when Q Prime, who managed, I think, Foreigner, uh, Metallica, wanted to take them over. Even the punk rock hardcore wars of the early 1980s ended up with Discord Records, I have no doubt, making millionaires of some people, alternative tentacles as well. I don't know. Did they make millionaires of some people? I kind of have a feeling they did. Um, Whatever anyone wants to say about the Sex Pistols, I think they're, uh, you know, a boy band formed out of a fashion shop in Soho. Um, You may disagree, that's okay. But they were sculpted carefully and cleverly by Malcolm McLaren um, and Vivian Westwood. And there's no doubt he wanted to create something huge. I just recently read a book about factory records, uh, where Joy Division and all that kind of thing came from. Uh, Joy Division, the whole Manchester scene, very interesting, very fascinating. But didn't it somehow end up in Blue Monday being one of the biggest selling singles of all time for New Order? Um, And where did the money go? The fallout from that still seems, after all these years, to have people at each other's throats. But is that where every countercultural movement ends up? Where something ends up breaking the bank um, and people go, oh, dollar signs. And almost every countercultural scene becomes co-opted. Speaking of Discord records, I see that Fugazi are playing again. Is that correct? Could that be true? I saw Fugazi in 1992 in Dublin. And women dressed as nuns were handing out condoms to the crowd. Quite an edgy move in the early 90s, I can tell you. I think it was £4.50 in. I could recommend maybe uh, Repeater uh, by Fugazi if you don't know what I'm talking about. But money changes things, my friends. And that's kind of what I'm, I guess, sort of rambling around trying to talk about here in episode I don't know, what is it? 146, 147? Mm. From the very first impulses to join a band or book an underground show, print flyers, write fanzines, keep the shows at a reasonable price for a ticket and be proactive, there was always, it seems, at the end of the line, somebody wondering, how can we make some money out of this? I mean, it sort of makes sense, and I'm not, you know, anti-capitalist, fundamentally. Um, You know, I have issues with elements of it, but that's not for this podcast. 
But if you were there and then in the underground period of any scene before it got co-opted, corrupted, whatever you want to say, I would say enjoy that moment, enjoy those memories, as I think it clearly doesn't last. Whether... Let's say, you know, in modern terms, it's the current explosion of this retro synthwave scene, which at the very start seemed sort of something new and exciting, but ends up in covers of Maniac, Maniac, etc. Um, which maybe always meant to do, because I had the feeling it was sort of self-parody to begin with. Or, I don't know, I remember somebody shared with me that Lebanon Hanover video, this goth band from Germany, um, where these, you know, goths are buying... Isn't it a loaf of bread at the start of the video? And they crack the code because the cracking the code of what is shared on social media is to make it incongruous, to put something that doesn't belong in a certain situation. And uh, people go, oh, that's weird. Look at those goths buying some bread. Hey, you used to be a goth. Look at this, etc., etc." I always said that um, if I made a video for a primordial song, which was just literally me putting on all my stage gear, and just walking down the road outside, um, which is nightclub kicking out. It's full of nightclubs, you know, a nightclub kicking out time, which is full of normal people pissed. And just walk down the road with all my stuff on and film people reacting to me. This would get lots of views. Not me trying to do something artistic. Place something in a situation that it should not be and people will share it. Um, which, you know, says a lot about artistic intention or integrity. But... My point was, I remember getting uh, shared that Lebanon Hanover video, Hanover video where they were, um, you know, buying loaves of bread in some small little shop and Sadness is Rebellion. And it had like 8,000 views. Go and look at that, Lebanon Hanover. I think the song is called Sadness is Rebellion. It must be at 10 million views. Um, but these, you know, this was a kind of explosion in small terms. Now, nothing compared to the 70s and 80s kind of bands. But these, in the grand scheme of things, are the sort of small... They're, of course, they're small compared to the moves in the 70s and 80s where millions of physical sales um, were involved behind certain bands who broke through. But can we say the 70s bands, um, you know, before punk, and I say that with a little pinch of salt, really wanted to stay hidden and underground and principled. What were those undergrounds? I'm not so sure, but at least I certainly know about the one in the late 80s. But let's go back in time a little bit, my friends. I remember. I remember. Um, I remember talking to an old Dublin band. Maybe it must be back in late 91. Could even be 1992. And I think if my memory serves, they were called Painted Horse. Painted Horse. Terrible name for a band. But however, they were all sunglasses at night, fancy gear. I mean, look, anybody who had any gear compared to us, we thought was fancy. But, you know, lots of guitar solos, um, lots of onstage posturing, onstage Jim Morrison style posturing. Or could it have been the band Dream Creeper? I'm not sure. If you're from Dublin and you're from the scene in the late 80s, you probably know those, both of those names and you know exactly what I'm going to say. But when you spoke to them, they were all about trying to get major labels, the Irish, let's say, division of Universal Records or Island Records, down to see them and get signed. It was like this U2 model of success. Oh, Bono. Yep, this U2 model of success handed down, handed down to them by the Irish music industry because this is what you did. And I remember standing, true enough, admiring, or maybe it was coveting, um, their gear, which is, you know, let, let's... Before we continue, let's acknowledge that um, thou shalt not covet thy um, neighbor's gear. Um, 
the singer of said band with his sunglasses on in the pub in some shitty bar. Well, I mean, I've added that detail. I'm not sure it was entirely true. But he was never going to listen to the likes of me. I mean, who would? But, well, you are, I mean, to some degree. But by 91, maybe it's a hate listen, I don't know. But by 91, the writing was on the wall for that kind of band. They were sort of um, power thrash, sort of, I'm not even sure, of heavy metal, whatever. The writing was on the wall. Um, death metal, the underground had come along and was just going to clump all that stuff into the ground. And all the Irish bands who made anything of themselves came from our generation, the next generation, the underground tape trading generation. But I remember saying to that guy, like, well, we just want to make a demo. We just want to, you know, get it out there, tape trade it. And he just looked at me with 10 heads like, like tape trading, what the hell is that? Because their model of how they were going to achieve success was going to be get the exec from Island Records down to the show and, you know, he's going to hear our tunes and we're going to get signed to a development deal and all of a sudden we're going to be, I don't know, sent to some big studio in London. And it, it just seemed to be such a huge disconnect from the likes of us who were tape trading, making fanzines. And there was only about four or five years between us but those were the difference between being involved in the underground scene in 88, 89, 90 and the heavy metal scene in 83, 84, 85, where um, small bands saw, um, they tried to think of how can we be the next huge band, not how we can build from the ground up and create our own scene around us. Yet, yet there I was four years later in 1995, um, and four years is a long time when you're a teenager, but four years later in 1995 on the phone, to someone from Nuclear Blast Records. Um, Primordial had made our debut album, Imrama, and I had sent it out to a few other labels. We'd never really, um, we didn't really understand contracts. I remember from Imrama, we did no press. Um, we didn't really do, we didn't really understand that we should have been interviewed or um, anything like this. I, I still have no clue about how many copies the album sales. We never made any money from it. Should we have made it? I have no clue. I have no idea about any of it. But we didn't really um, consider that the contract that we signed was really worth what probably it was worth. But I sent it. I sent the album to Nuclear Blast Records and I got a phone call. Uh, my mother said, there's somebody from Nuclear Blast Records on the phone. Wow. And um, I don't know who the person was, but they told me we have we have three bands in mind to sign. And those three bands were Gorgoroth, Dissection and Primordial. And the rest as they say, is history, a sliding doors moment. And who knows if I would be here talking to you if um, Primordia wasn't the odd person out of that three, um, you know, the, what's, what's, what are those books called? Choose your own adventure. Well, the adventure we chose was <laughs> to not sign to a big label. Um, and Nuclear Blast, I mean, uh, you know, those first records, um, is it not Chronicle Diarrhea or... Um, Salomo Says or something like this. I remember seeing ads at the time. Or was it Pungent Stench, Disharmonic Orchestra Split? But they released lots of seven inches and in demos at the start. Um, and certainly at this at that stage in 89, who would have predicted in 1998 they would have uh, some albums and bands on their books selling 400 to 500,000 copies? And I'm talking about Inflames, Therion, Dimu Borgir, who were all underground bands when we were underground bands. In fact, I remember a, a, an open-air festival in Germany uh, one of the very first, there's still, you can still find images and tickets of it um, Google in Google Images. I still have a ticket for it on my wall, but I got money in an envelope. An envelope, yes, I kid you not. Um, and it was not enough money for us to fly over to play, but uh, on that bill was Bethlehem Enslaved, 
dissection in flames and we were all kind of at the same well ish level in 1993 1994 and Promodio was supposed to play on the second day and not enough money came back and I remember having an envelope full of Deutschmarks in a phone box somewhere trying to go ah, it's not enough money and then going to my parents oh, can you lend me uh, 500 pounds which you know now is the equivalent of asking I think your parents for like can you lend me 5,000 euro I mean the idea that you couldn't get 500 euro together if you needed it now, I think, is probably unrealistic. But that was the underground. Those That's where those labels came from. Um, and how it might have been different if Primordial had ended up, you know, signing that contract. But I don't think we were ever realistically going to do it. That The fact that could Primordial have been like a Dimmu Borgir, I think is very unrealistic when it comes to um, selling records or even our ability to fulfill things that were kind of simplistic at the time, like touring or that kind of thing. But the question I was asked at the time, I had to really think about, did did we ever do something like that? Mm, it's interesting to think. But in the Patreon, um, by the way, patreon.com, but the question I was asked was specifically about Century Media and what happened there. Because there was certainly this mid-90s aesthetic that was particularly Century Media. And it was kind of different. They had a different aesthetic, the different feel. And those early seven inches, um, Unleashed, Tiamat, Grave, etc., um, were kind of like gold dust. They are like gold dust. Um, and they're all compiled on the In the Eyes of Death sampler, I think. All are not only highly collectible, um, and all of which I own, uh, thank you very much, but great in their own right. But an odd thing um, an odd thing happened after a couple of years and I guess this is where the question arises because in the mid-90s there was a great shift a great change and I'm going to try and consider that but the first let's get heavy metal nerd uh, all about it all right now Sameo were the first band to move from Osmos Osmos Productions out of France in 1991 was the most important uh, underground label there was I mean we're talking about Immortal we're talking about Pound Nazarene Sameo Profanatica Massacre with one S uh, Bull Metal, yes indeed, um, amongst many, many other bands. But this was maybe the most important label in the whole underground in 1991. And they moved to Century Media, who really, as a black metal, um, you know, a black metal fan in 1991, 92, it just broke my brain to think about. Now, of course, the resulting album, Blood Ritual, I think is an absolute stone-cold classic, if you ask me. But I bought it with trepidation in 92. Now... The black metal community was as sceptical as I was, but it contained actually many old songs from before Worship Him. Yeah, after the Sepultura, that kind of stuff. Um, brilliant. But it was kind of odd move, right? And then Rotting Christ was next. Tiamat had moved after the first album, Sumerian Cry, which is an absolute classic. And the first album recorded at, um, what's the name of that studio in Stockholm everybody went to? You know the one. You know the one. Entombed, Dismember, etc. Um, my mind is blank. I will think of it in a moment. But Tiamat, Sumerian Cry is the first album. And it, what makes Tiamat, Sumerian Cry a little bit more different is the fact that it's got, doc, 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 doc. it's got these sarcophago um, blast beat styles, this Brazilian style to it. Um, a brilliant. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Record. But nonetheless, this mid-90s, Century Media was beginning to shape and mold its bands. Rodding Christ was next. They made the brilliant album, I think, Modern Day Classic. Well, it's not Modern Day, is it? It's over 30 years, but... Um, or is it 28 years? I don't know. Triarchy of the Lost Lovers, which in fact, truth be told, could be considered my favourite Running Christ album. Um, yes, I know, heresy. Um, but something was happening. And we couldn't talk about this in the podcast without mentioning Valdemar Sorthche. Sorthche? Whatever. I don't know his, uh, how to say his surname. I met him once. Um, and his production values. Take a record now and then compare it to the production values of uh, early summer, or that kind of that period in 94, 95, uh, huge production and ceremony of opposites. You've got Moonspell, Rotting Christ, um, Tiamat, Wild Honey. Wow, what a production. But other bands followed. Moonspell, Moonspell. Wow, okay. And then rumors started appearing um, that they had had music lessons, that a certain, a certain Irish band who um, had almost signed and it was said, we're told if you sign, you've got to go and take lessons. Lessons? Wow. Okay. Um, and that they had their own studios, their own hotels, their own guest musicians. Rodding Christ went on the immortal, and uh, well, not immortal, but the uh, Moonspell Samail tour, and the bassist just arrived, a stand-in guy who knew all their songs. Now, this broke our brains. Now, being part of the music industry, I completely understand it. But it was just somebody who was just sent by the label, no less. Um, and... Iced Earth were just sort of signed from their old heavy metal early 90s underground and by 98 were huge, huge. And let's talk about Sentenced, Moonspell. But there's something I want to try and dig down to and that is the social 
cultural um, relevance of all of this. And because typo negative bloody, cu- bloody kisses sort of altered the game forever. And what I think is that there's a parallel between that album and Def Leppard Hysteria, which came out in 85, 86. For if the new wave of British heavy metal scene, heavy metal scene of like 80, 81, 82, um, was hugely um, influenced or compromised by the success of Def Leppard. Because don't forget, Def Leppard Hysteria is, I don't know, 30 million record sales. Pyromania is 20. People forget now, but these Def Leppard are way bigger. They've sold way more records than every Judas Priest record, every Iron Maiden record, everything else. And didn't Judas Priest kind of follow it a bit with Turbo? Even Iron Maiden somewhere in time had a few keyboards. And let's not talk about Saxon and many, many other bands teasing their hair up or whatever else, um, donning the spandex. Um, or the uh, golf visors, as uh, the case may be. But um, Hysteria and Pyromania kind of changed the game. And you have a feeling that when Typo Negative, Bloody Kisses dropped, this sort of mid-90s goth, gothism, sort of really changed the aesthetic. I mean, Rod and Christ went to Sleep of the Angels, Samael, uh, sent his moon spell, definitely. Irreligious, still a great record, but there's no doubt about it. It was influenced, I think, by... Um, by typo negative a little bit. Um, um, what I'm trying to get at is that is there was there a social cultural, um, you know, relevance to this? I.e., is this well? Let's just say this: is this how it always goes? Is this is how every scene goes. It's co-opted, and then there's money to be made in it. But if we take, for example, the late 1970s, things are pretty poor in most of the most of the developed world, especially in Europe. Um, and then by the mid-80s, you have this greed is good, Gordon Gecko, Bonfire the Vanity style um, embrace of being, being um, a rich bitch. And isn't Hysteria by Def Leppard the sound of cocaine? Isn't it? Isn't it? And if you think about bands like Creator, maybe, you know, in Night Terrible, certainly uh, whatever, is the sound of the Roar Industrial Valley. But it, even by 98, by Endorama, they were subsumed by the post-typo negative world. Um, isn't, couldn't we say that Europe, by like 91, 92, there was a growth of this new emergent middle class. You've heard me talk about it on the podcast before. But this new emergent middle class um, of the mid-90s, Ireland of which um, benefited greatly, or those, you know, it was very easy to see how this was moving through society. And their musical taste changed. We went from aggression to angst. Um, you know, there was lots of movies in the mid-90s that sort of um, tied into all of this. But certainly, um, the sound of struggle, which maybe, you know, um, the underground had in the late 80s, early 90s, um, the Masters Hammers, the Beherits, the Rotting Christs, all this kind of stuff, um, the early death metal um, second wave scene, the demos, the fanzines, it kind of got replaced by this slick kind of aesthetic and the record sales were there to like back it up all of a sudden Dimmu Borger went from no colours records yeah on the debut to selling half a million records in Nuclear Blast now maybe that's just the natural process of things but something kind of says to me in the middle of all that there was the the spectre you know of a female fronted gothic metal of Nightwish sitting um, in this sort of rotting corpuscle of where heavy metal was moving in the mainstream um, it's the sound of comfortable living. And that was the sound of the mid-90s as we moved to this new emergent middle class, just like maybe the sound of 1980, 
the sound of new wave of British heavy metal, north of England, working class, um, you know, poverty, struggle, whatever you want to call it, adversity, gave way fundamentally to Photograph or whatever, or Def Leppard. And maybe there's a kind of class thing to this because sooner or later, all, um, you know, grassroots working class movements, um, if they start to, to move and shift, somebody somewhere goes, we could make some money from this. And it moves from being middle to working class because working class people, especially who um, get, you know, latch onto a trend and go, ah, this is a roots thing. Um, we have a singer in Ireland guy called Damien Dempsey. I actually went to school a year underneath him. Um, he is exactly what he says. He sings about uh, Irish working class, sort of, you know, songs about struggle and songs about um, class and that kind of thing. I'm not to my tastes, but a genuine dude. Um, his fans, I'm not so sure if they really re- relate exactly to the class issues because I think there's an element of trend within um, liking him from the middle class because it's, um, you know, it's kind of like something that connects us to a way Dublin used to be or we a romantic vision of the past. I don't know. What am I talking about? Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned him. But my point is we go from aggression to angst, working class to middle class. Is the um, consummation of the underground scene of 88 to 92, the heavy metal, the underground death metal, kind of whatever you want to say, uh, black metal scene, it inevitably inevitably led to the move by the big labels of the time to try and just get involved. And it kind of destroyed and dissolved that own, that, that second wave scene until the third wave scene came back along where bands like Watain or The Devil's Blood or whoever else or Niflheim or something were the answer to where the bloated carcass of heavy metal had drifted in 96 or 97 or 98. And I wonder, I sometimes wonder, is there a class principle to it? I'm not so sure. That's kind of what I'm rambling about. But metal moved. And does this major label principle have anything to do with that? Did it help it? Did it begin it? But certainly capitalised on it. But certainly the post-typo-negative world was um, a much more streamlined, gothic kind of feeling to all of those 95, 96, 97 um, moves. Everything became very slick, very professional. You look at Sentence Down, um, like I said, Moonspell, Irreligious, even Rotting Christ with, like I said, with Sleep of the Angels, Samael. And there's a ton of other bands. Let me have a look at my list. Um, well, look, Lacuna Coil, whatever else. You know the names. And it sort of made me one of the gathering, um, you know, just off the top of my head. Well, all of this is off the top of my head. But it was a very slick, very professional, very kind of anesthetized uh, version of an underground scene. And it made me wonder, is this kind of what happens to every scene? But is it happening to any metal scene or rock scene at the moment? And that's what we were arguing about earlier on. I was in my friend's record shop. By the way, um, Sentinel Records is in Temple Bar in Dublin. Um, it's underneath the barber shop on the corner down from the Foggy Jew. In case you're visiting Dublin and want to go to an actual record shop with lots of cool vinyl in it, just to give a shout out to the shop. But we were discussing this and what we were discussing was all of those things. OK, let's take New Wave British Heavy Metal, Punk Rock, late 70s. By mid-80s, it's been sort of chewed in, spat out. You know, the Ravens, the Saxons are making records inspired by producers, Sabotage, Riot, whatever else. Um, You know, it happened to the second wave of black metal. Um, It happened again 
in the late, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010s. But did it, is there some metal scene right now that record exec somewhere going, oh, this is what we need to capitalize on it? Is it versions of guitar playthrough poly- polyphia? Polyphia? I don't know. Is it is it all the tech kind of stuff? Where is the new um, heavy metal scene that major labels are trying to um, capitalize on? Now, somebody said to me, oh, it's Turnstile. Turnstile, okay, there's a name that I hadn't heard before and I had to go and look up. And I went, okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, a couple of thousand people showing up to see them. Um, I don't know. Is, is a band like that going to break through into something bigger? Or do we have a complete monopoly by just, you know, hip hop, uh, rap and just sort of like pop music? Is there a rock, a metal thing that's trying to break through in the mainstream? Or or is everything exhausted, even within the confines, the self-contained confines of the metal scene? Um, all of those labels I've been discussing, by the way, as I said, have been bought by major labels. Um, the Nuclear Blast, the Central Medias, the Spine Farms, they're all bought and owned by much, much bigger old legacy labels. And you're just trying to think, um, well, what we were trying to think and what we we're trying to argue about was, well, what's the new thing that they're trying to capitalize on? Hmm, difficult to think about, isn't it? I mean, there was also an interesting moment, um, I think in about 93, 92, 93, 94, and somebody made an awful lot of money about it over this, but um, when Carcass, Napalm Death, um, Morbid Angel, Cathedral, especially, they all got signed to major labels, and this is where you get Covenant was on a major label, and you get the incredible videos for Rapture and God of Emptiness and all that. Cathedral also as well, Carcass, which I think is where we end up with the underrated, to be honest with you, Swan Song album that's is really worth a rediscovery because at the time people found it disappointing but i think now in the fullness of time um people can recognize it's a it's a it's a strong record um anyway that's not really my point but all those bands moved on to major labels and subsequently ended up being dropped after one or two albums later of sure i'm sure they hit 150 250 300,000 sales maybe covenant did 250 but ultimately they were all sucked in and then sort of spat out by major labels by not managing to sell enough. And I was talking about this with my good friend, uh, Mr. Paul Kearns, who used to be in the band Arcane Sun, old Irish band, Mr. Stato Man. And we're talking about uh, what were the greatest, the biggest selling extreme metal albums of all time. And now we settled on The End Complete, which I heard is at about 500,000. There's a few Cradle of Filth. A few Dimmer Borger albums at 400 to 450,000, I think. But by and large, the extreme metal scene doesn't have many albums, um, even over 250,000. And you think of that in the grand scheme of things. Now, what's the biggest Slayer album? I imagine it seems in the abyss. I'm, I think it's probably sitting at about two, two and a half million. Uh, Megadeth, I think I've sold more records than Slayer. I think the biggest record is Context Down to Extinction. Three, three and a half. Now I'm going to get shot down in the comments. People going, no, it's at 2.7, according to Nielsen Soundscan or whatever. But the point is, in the underground scene, I am two, three, four hundred thousand sales is more than enough for an old tape trading, demo trading label, which Nuclear Blast and Intermedia were. And that's, you know, Amorphous Tales of the Thousand Lakes selling 300,000 copies is huge for them. It's huge, huge. And then take 10 bands who sell that. But for a major label, we're putting in lots of money at the time. This is not enough because they came from a metal scene um, where the thrash metal bands of the early to mid 90s, mid 80s, 
excuse me, um, ended up selling one, two, three million. And we're talking now the Metallicas um, of this world and the Just Unders. Um, and you could see they were trying to break it as well. And then those bands kind of got spat out and sort of dumped after um, a few experiments in the mid to late 90s and had to go back to the labels that they were on before or they just split up because the whole experience just um, sucked the life out of them. Hence, you know, Carcass, I think, are a good example of that. Um, And it just kind of shows you that maybe you need to just stay in the confines of the, let's say, be a medium-sized fish in a medium-sized pond. Don't be the little fish in the huge pond because maybe extreme metal just wasn't meant for that. But certainly there was an incredible amount of crafting that went on. That central media, mid-90s, sort of image the production values and the Woodhouse Studios, Sunlight Studios, my friends. Yes, I, of course, I knew I would get there. That was the um, the Stockholm version. Um, brilliant studios, of course. Um, but... It is very interesting, and maybe I'll do a complete nerd out on this of the top 10, top 20 selling extreme metal albums of all time. But there are very few, if any, that are over half a million copies. And I, inca- I include, I'm not going to include Slayer or Venom or Megadeth or in that, in that count. But in our, let's say, the, I suppose what I'm talking about is the underground scene that I was once part of. Plenty of 50s and 100s and 150s, but once you had 200, 250, very few um But the point was, what happened to all that generation of bands? Were they influenced by the process around them? Influenced by the label? Crafted by the label? Certainly, I had conversations with Sackis from Rodding Christ in the early 2000s where he said, oh, I made a mistake, a big mistake on Sleep of the Angels. And I think he felt that the sound had been manipulated by producers by the label and the logo was taken off the album it was the first time i ever heard of things like um you won't see the artwork until you see the record in the shop that kind of stuff and i was like wow that really happens of course those are major label things from the 80s plenty of bands i'm sure ufo didn't see their album covers until they saw it in the rack you know and went what's wrong with being sexy or whatever and when they saw the cover of force it and what you should go back and have a look at if you don't know i think it's by hypnosis which is the pink floyd people is it? Is it? I don't know. Whatever it could be. Um, but all these kind of major label things that we didn't understand. We're, you know, 20, 25 years ago, like, wow, you didn't see your own album cover until you saw it in the racks. Wow, Dead Poems, Sleep of the Angels. And you didn't know they were doing this and that and the other. And then you realize that the thing things were being carefully crafted. And then somebody told you, oh, they sent the drummer of Moonspell for lessons before you're religious. And then you go, now, looking back, I kind of go, oh, yeah. I can see where that double pedal bit at the start of Opium comes from that maybe it didn't come from the records for. I don't know. So how much was willful? How much was input by young bands? I certainly know from my own point of view, I've signed record contracts as a young man without really reading them properly or knowing the considerations. And I could have I could have easily signed up for get this guy vocal lessons when I was 19 and I would have gone, uh, I'm here for the vocal lessons. Uh, and somebody would, would have gone, la, 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 whatever. And I would have gone, la, 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 and gone, oh, God, that seems like, it seems like I need to do this. So what is co-opted? What is um, a real situation? I guess that was what the question was about. And that is somehow what I've managed to talk for 40 minutes in and around. The idea that every 
counterculture is subsumed or consumed by, um, you know, factors of the mainstream when they perceive that there's some money to be made from it. And how much do we buy in with our willingness to want to engage in a Mephistophelian um, sort of pact with the devil? That's the question, my friends. That's the question. I'm going to keep asking this because I just finished a whole lot of music biographies. Um, Lou Reed, David Bowie, um, all sorts of interesting stuff. Led Zeppelin, uh, Rolling Stones, um, and I really want to dig into these in a, in the next few podcasts and ask how the fuck did these people get away with all of these things? Um, because there are certain things these bands did that, whether it comes to heroin, drugs, all this kind of stuff, that the way life is lived now, which is um, you know no privacy whatsoever. Are you listening, Siri? Um, silence. Um, that you could never, ever live like that anymore. And it's just fascinating, some of the things they did. So the next few podcasts, I'm going to, you know, just try and dig deep into some of these biographies, into the music scene kind of stuff. But the question was about mid-90s black death metal and was it compromised by the growth of sales and the capitalist ethic? And I think it probably was which I suppose is why you have some of those records. Well, my friends, that is episode 140, blah, blah, blah. I'm Alan Averill, your hostess with the leastest, and I am going to go back and drink a little more. My friends, we shall see you next Tuesday for Tuesday's Heavy Metal Miscellany. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.